the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Thanks for tuning in again today to the Tuesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as we do every weekday at 4 o'clock on this radio station, we're here to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. Anything and everything that's on your heart, we'll do the best that we can. Here's the phone numbers, 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app, and you can send your questions in to us that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, Just hit the call now button. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. There's not a lot going on on Tuesday, so I'll get right to the questions. I do want to make one sort of scheduling uh, announcement for you tomorrow. Paula will be live in studio with me for the Wednesday program. I know it's not date day, but uh, she's going to be at her women's retreat on date day. So um, she's going to be on the program with me tomorrow. So ladies, if you have the opportunity, you can call in and Paula will be here to uh, kind of share her heart with you and encourage you, we hope. So that's tomorrow's program. Remember our ladies retreat starting on Thursday through Saturday morning. Uh, we would love to know that people out there are praying. We're expecting God is going to do a really, really neat work. So um, we'd love for you to join. It's not too late. One more time, three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is our first question from our mobile app today. It's from AA. Uh, AA says, can you provide the verses that say God hates organized religion? Isn't Calvary Chapel an organized religion to worship God? Um, AA, we're really not at all. We would we would not consider ourselves um, very organized. Uh, nor would we consider ourselves uh, a religion. Our faith, and this is important, um, when I made that comment, and I made it often in response to questions, when I made that comment, it's based on religion always being uh, the way man tries to work his way to God. We don't get sincerity points. We don't get um, any, well, you know, they're trying to do the right thing points. In order to have access to God, you have to be perfect, and only Jesus can give us that perfection. And the way we have access to God is through the access provided by Jesus Christ. And any religion, no matter how well-intended it might be, any religion where you're not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ is, by definition, human's way of trying to work our way to God. You see, we couldn't work our way to God. We couldn't do enough good, nor could we be good enough. And all of the liturgy, all of the things that we celebrate, 
all of our lists of do's and don'ts, none of that gets us any closer to heaven. That's why God had to come down to us. Because we can't make our way to him. And it doesn't matter what the religion is. If somebody says, well, I'm a, I'm a religious Christian, if they're not born again, they're, they're, they're not able to communicate with God. Lighting a candle doesn't communicate with God. Doing a good deed, celebrating Lent, um, going to a Mass and partaking of the elements. None of those things have any value or virtue in the most practical sense, because only a clean heart, only a clean heart. Do I have Bible verses? Well, the whole Bible. But listen to this. This is from Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah, God speaking through him to the Jewish people. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my court? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Now, I want you to think about this. This is Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, where I started to read. But can you imagine you, you celebrate something, you bring a, a, an offering to God in some way. Maybe you even are, are a professing Christian, but, but not born again. You put some money in the offering box. God just told you, stop it. He doesn't need your offerings. What he wants is your heart. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Listen to this. Your incense is detestable to me. Incense is... is uh, a, a, symbolic of prayer in the Old Testament. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you, even if you offer many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Now, Obviously, this is a, a terrible indictment. But remember, Jesus never indicts us without giving us the opportunity to be changed. Verse 16 says, wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong and learn to do right. And he goes on and on. Now, all throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, we get these kinds of, of, of admonitions. So it's very important you understand that religion is meaningless. Intentions, as I said earlier, mean nothing. The only thing that matters is to wash and make yourselves clean. And the only way we can do that, of course, is by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You know what else? It's not enough. And, and I want everybody to hear my heart on this one. It's not enough to say, well, I believe in Jesus Christ. If... if the Jesus you met hasn't changed you. If you haven't repented of sin, if, if you, you haven't changed. And one of the reasons religion has always prospered in the world, in the history of the world, and by the way, in the Great Tribulation, it'll be the most religious time in the history of this planet. But it will be an evil, false religion. One of the reasons religion thrives is because we can do things that seem to be good and godly. Without feeling like we have to do anything to change. We can do good things. We can do religious things. And it makes us feel better. It gives us a little hope. Well, I'm doing this for God. What more does he want? But it's false hope. So, A, it's, it's, it's very important. Religion is condemned. Um, I actually think it's a curse word. That's how I always approach it. And I don't want to... Uh, frankly, I just don't want to 
let people fall in the trap of trying to work their way to God because it's impossible. Let's go to Shirts, Texas and talk with Scott on line one. Scott, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Brother Ron. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. You just, uh, this isn't my question, but you just brought to mind with your comments there, uh, you know, um, where it said, uh, did I not cast out demons in your name? I did not heal the sick. And, and Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. Yep. And that just came to mind as you were saying that. Um, my, my question Scott, let me, today. Let, um, okay, let me, let, yeah, let me also add this, Scott. Yeah. He also said, depart from me, you doer of iniquity. You, you, you doer of um, evil. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so, so yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty important. So the, yeah, good point. That's the religion. That's the religion. Yeah. Um, okay, brother. Um, I don't know if I can verbalize this correctly, but hopefully you can help me out with this. Um, okay. In Genesis 22, where Abraham is called to sacrifice his son, his only son, um, I've been questioned in the past from people when I've gone across this in Bible studies and what have you, and and I really don't feel I ever answer it fully or really directly um and i guess i just i just wanted to hear how you would approach that if somebody comes to you um and what comes to mind is like um i guess it's been several many years ago now but i think there was somebody in the news where they killed their children or something thinking that god was going to stop them and 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 anyway just believers will come up and or even non-believers and, and and question you about this and i just like to hear your take or how you would answer or have maybe even answered um, questions um, that come up on this passage. And I'm going to get off the phone and listen to you on the air, brother. Okay. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it very, very much. Thank, Thank you. you for, for for listening. Thanks for calling. Um, uh, it's a very timely question, Scott, because believe it or not, I was just asked this question today uh, by somebody. So um, it's a very troubling passage. Uh, for people. How could God ask him to do thing now do do such a thing? Now before I answer the question, if it's troubling to us, imagine how difficult it was for Abraham. We know that from the moment God told him to sacrifice his son, his only son, Abraham began on what would be a three day journey to the place that we know as Calvary. And that would be where he would sacrifice his son. And we know that for three days he wrestled with God. We know how angry he must have been. We know how broken he must have been. This would fly in the face of everything that Abraham knew of God. God, you gave me this child. I prayed for this child. We waited for this child. You said this child would be the heir to the nations. How could you? And then he would stop. Because what we find out in Hebrews chapter 11, Scott, is that Abraham at some point in this three-day journey came to the conclusion that, well, God, you made promises about my son Isaac. And since you can't break your promises, you cannot lie. I'm going to do what I have to do. And you're going to then do what you have to do and Hebrews 11 tells us that figuratively he was resurrected from the dead. Abraham had great faith, even in Genesis 22, when he was getting ready to leave. His wife, his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. So every moment this journey of Abraham's was covered in faith. Now, because somebody, some mentally ill person or misguided religious person killed their children thinking God would stop them, has no more relevance to this discussion than when you see churches even now that handle rattlesnakes because they have no understanding of how to study their Bibles. God had a direct word from Abraham. I mean, Abraham had a direct word from God. He knew the voice of God. He was God's friend. Now, here's what happened, Scott. It's clear that Abraham had begun to prioritize his relationship with Isaac over his relationship with God. 
the giver of the gift took a subservient position to the gift itself. And God is always going to challenge us. Now, obviously, it was clear in the heart and the mind of God that he was never going to require Isaac to be sacrificed. We know from God's word, we know from God's character, that sacrificing children is an abomination to God, something he never thought of, never considered. But this was a test. Abraham, you used to love me so much. Now you have transferred that love to Isaac. What's happened to you? And this was a test not only of Abraham, but for Abraham. Because for Abraham to fulfill what God had for him to do, he had to get his priorities right. So this was a test. Who do you love more, Abraham? Do you love me? Or do you love Isaac more? And we all know that when Abraham raised the knife, the voice of God stopped him in his tracks. Don't lay a hand on the lad. I like the King James. God himself will provide a sacrifice. Literally, that's God will provide himself as a sacrifice. This is a picture, it's a very important picture for the history of the church throughout generations. There needed to be a sacrifice. Jews should have been able to understand this. There needs to be a sacrifice for sins. And God was going to accomplish that by sending his son, his only son. And this was just a picture, it was a test. One of the comment on this, Scott, because when people who are unbelievers ask this question, I think the best way that we can answer is to tell them, well, why don't you read the Bible for yourself and let God answer the questions for you? Instead of finding this very difficult passage of Scripture and saying, well, yeah, if there's a God of will, how could he ask Abraham to do this thing? You know, I could ask somebody to do something that I was never going to require him to do. It wouldn't be asking anything. But but the test, Abraham's test was what was necessary for him and for us to learn from. It's required. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 says that every man given a trust by God must prove faithful. Abraham passed the test with flying colors. He did it. His inclusion in Hebrews 11 suggests he did it by faith. So that's how I answer the question. I had somebody today that was just really troubled with how could God do those things. You know, the people that really know the character and the heart of God don't ask those questions. New believers? Sure, they ask those questions. I ask those questions. But the questions are only and always resolved by looking at the heart, the character, the nature of God and we'll find our answers. Scott, thanks. Great question. Thanks. Appreciate you calling. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from my friend Caleb, who I messed up yesterday. He's laughing at me a little bit with a good spirit. Uh, this is from our email inbox. Thank you, Pastor Ron, for clarifying Revelation chapter 17, then parentheses. He writes, and chapter 12, laugh out loud. Uh, my next Revelation 17 question is, what exactly is Mystery Babylon mentioned in verse 5? Now, for those of you who weren't listening to yesterday's program, uh, I, I saw Revelation 17, but I thought he misquoted it and went to Revelation 12. So uh, I answered a question he didn't want, uh, or he didn't need me to answer. Uh, Mystery Babylon, I, I did touch on this yesterday, Caleb. Uh, this is the the false religious system uh, of the world in the last days. Now, it can also be applied retroactively to all false religious system, but the idea of mystery here is important. It indicates that there's much more in view than just physical Babylon. Uh, Babylon, the economic um, uh, system, is going to be destroyed. We know that physical Babylon, the, the dirt and the, the bricks and the mortar, is going to be destroyed. But Revelation chapter 17 opens um, with the priority, and that's the, the, the spiritual Babylon, the religious Babylon. 
And this speaks to the religion, even the philosophy, the powers behind physical Babylon. You know, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, he calls the true church a mystery. Um, um, but, but this false church in the end times is also uh, a mystery, but it's a counterfeit of the devil. Uh, Babylon in Scripture is a symbol of confusion. It was where God confused the language of those who rebelled against him, Genesis chapter 11. And for a Jew, a, a Jewish mind, Babylon represented the essence of total evil. Now, in John's day, now remember, John, the Apostle John is writing this. In John's day, that city was Rome. Rome was the enemy of God, the enemy of Israel. Uh, it was Rome where Christians were put to death without any reason other than they were Christians um, in the Great Tribulation. That city is going to be changed to Babylon. Um, unfortunately, Caleb, uh, one of the mysteries here is that the spirit behind Babylon and Rome, and as I said in response to the other question about religion, uh, behind all religion has always and will always be to control this world. That's why Paul called Satan the god, the little g-god of this age in Second Corinthians. So we're talking about the city of Babylon. But mystery Babylon is the religious system behind the city, the, the spiritual power of the devil behind um, the city of Babylon in the last days. Hope that helps. Thank you very, very much for your question. Um, you see, do I have a phone call? Nope, we're five minutes. Here's a question from Anonymous. Um, he or she says, how can we know for sure that heaven and Jesus are real? Can anyone really be sure what happens after we die? You know, Anonymous, um, um, your question's important because every single Christian at some point uh, has the enemy lie to him and ask him this question. You know, when in the Garden of Eden, when Eve was near the forbidden tree, did God really say? The enemy's been trying to cast doubt on God's promises from the very beginning. And so we get born again, we give our life to Jesus, we experience the power of the Spirit, and then we go through something difficult, and the enemy is always saying, well, how do you know it's true? I've done funerals, right in the middle of funerals that I've been doing. I've had the enemy just almost screaming at me, saying, well, what if this isn't true? You're just lying to these people. So here's how we can know. We know, Anonymous, that Jesus was real, as an, an historical person. We know that there is no doubt. We know that he died as he said he would on a Roman cross. But we also know that he didn't stay dead. The evidence of his death and his resurrection is overwhelming. And that's the proof that we have. No other religious system has a leader who was murdered and came back to life, demonstrably came back to life. He's the first fruits of resurrection, Paul says. And because he lives, we know that we too will live. So we can be sure what happens after we die. The question, I think, is how do we deal with the lies of the enemy and the doubts that he brings? while we're alive? And the answer is by faith, not blind, dumb faith, but faith in the Word of God. And every time the enemy hits me with one of those, well, how do you know it's true? Uh, I went through nearly a year ago, nine months ago, uh, I went through a, 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 a life-threatening situation. And believe me, in that hospital room, there were, there were two people. Uh, well, I, I, not counting me. Paula was there. But so was the devil. He was there the whole time. Well, you know, if this is it, you don't know where you're going. But I knew absolutely for sure, and it was in that time that I had to exercise what I knew, faith in what I knew to be true. And I had no question. I've got just a minute, so let me just say this. You know, when they reeled me into the... Uh, Operating room. I, I've not been operated on before and never, you know, I mean, I've just been really healthy, been really blessed. And they were going to put me out and I said, I don't want to 
I don't want to be put out. I don't want to go out, go under. And they said, well, we'll give you, you know, an IV, but believe me, you'll go to sleep. Everybody says they, they don't want to, but they're going to go to sleep. And I said, no, I really won't. And my whole idea was I wanted to be talking to Jesus. If something would have went wrong, I wanted to be talking with Jesus. Before I left this body, and I wanted to be talking to him when I left this body and was with him in his presence. Those things really, really matter. And when you're dealing with difficult things, Anonymous, holding on to what you know, not letting go of something that you're sure of for something that you're not sure about, that's what you need to do. You need by faith. So, Anonymous, thank you for your question. I hope that helps. Well, there's the music. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your live calls. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. 340-9585. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back on the other side of the break. See you in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We're back from our break, 340-9585. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. Here's a question from Anna. She says, should babies be baptized? Anna, the answer is no. Um... What we do here at Calvary Chapel doesn't mean that everybody has to do what Calvary Chapel does, but what we do is we dedicate our babies. We get that out of First Samuel chapter 1 when uh, Hannah's baby, who turned out to be Samuel, uh, was dedicated to the Lord. She promised him to the Lord, and um, she fulfilled her vow to, to give the baby to the Lord. Uh, we dedicate him to the Lord. And when we do that, on a, basically we're dedicating not only the babies, but the parents as well sort of in a joint effort to raise that child uh, in, the, in the fear of the Lord, in the, in the, in the loving arms of the Lord. Uh, by the time our babies are grown, they should know what the love of Jesus is all about. It's, it's the parents and the godparents and the grandparents and families and friends, uh, church bodies. It's our job to rightly represent um, who Jesus is to that child. So um, that's what we do. Now, relative to this question of baptism, um, we know that Catholics baptize babies. We know that Lutherans baptize babies. Um, but, but they do so based on a tradition rather than based on uh, the Word of God. There's no authority for what they do. Uh, and while there's no damage that's done to the child by doing it, uh, the real damage is done by leaving a false sense of hope that, that somebody's saved because of an action their parents took as an infant. So uh, it's more based on superstition than anything else in tradition, uh, but there is no example at all in Scripture of a baby being baptized. There is the example of a baby being dedicated to the Lord um, all the days of his life. So that's what we do um, whatever you choose to do, uh, infant baptism is simply not something that has uh, any other value than emotional value for the family doing it. Well, I've done it for the Lord. The baby's going to be blessed now. That is to really misunderstand um, what God wants from your baby. And if you think about it, there's no infant that can make a choice of their own free will to serve Jesus. It's impossible. And parents don't have the right nor the authority to make that choice for their kid because it's individual. We have to believe on our own and every man, every woman who's ever been born will stand before the Lord and give account of his or her own walk with Jesus. Here is another anonymous question. It says, since the Bible doesn't say anything about abortion, how can you meaning me, Pastor on say it's wrong. Well, Anonymous, the baby, the, the abortion was unthinkable, unthinkable in the ancient world. 
children were a blessing. One of the things, and I, I don't mean to sound harsh here, but, but, but many, many children were necessary. You needed workers. You needed protection. You needed armies. So big, big families, these clans would grow. Uh, so so the, the idea of willfully murdering a child was unthinkable. So that's why the Bible doesn't use the word abortion. The Bible does say very clearly, thou shalt not murder. And abortion is murder. David said that he was conceived in sin. From his mother's womb, he was sinful at heart. The idea there being that the moment that we're conceived, we're a viable human being. We're just waiting for enough time to grow to a place where we could separate from a mother during the birth process. And to kill a child for any reason, the arguments that, well, it's a woman's right to choose, nobody has been given the right by God to choose murder. Even in our nation, we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the first one is life, and yet we've killed 65 million babies since 1973 who weren't given that basic right to life. So abortion is clearly sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. At the same time, it is a very serious sin. And to consider it is unthinkable. Just unthinkable. And yet, our world has said, that it's okay. You know, I tell Paul and I, when we talk at times, I, I tell you, you know, one of the things that's been true in the history of our country is anything that this nation blesses by virtue of saying it's okay, it's good, it's acceptable, uh, then it increases exponentially from generation to generation. In 1973, our nation was told that the government says it's okay to kill your child. 65 million babies later, I rest my case. 2015, the Supreme Court said that gay marriage was the law of the land. And now it's getting to the point where it's not at all unusual to see gay people married to one another. That's not unusual to see people approving and applauding the choices they make. And sadly, it's not at all unusual any longer to see our young people confused, experimenting with things that they never would have thought about doing had the world not said it was okay and applauded the process of coming out. We see this with this whole silly transgender issue. You know, something that we all knew for sure 10 years ago. We all knew for sure that if you were biologically male or biologically female, that's your gender that's assigned at birth. And now we say gender is fluid. And we've got more and more kids as a result. Believing that they're not who their body says they are, who their DNA says they are. Can you imagine the price to pay? Jesus said something about millstones and deep water for those who make the little ones stumble. And yet that's the world that we live in in these last days. So the Bible says a lot, Anonymous, about abortion, about these other issues. Maybe it doesn't use the same terms, but it says a lot about it. And it is wrong. It will always be wrong. And God doesn't change. He won't change his mind or his heart. Here is a question from Andy. On a happier note, thank you, Andy. He says, how would you recommend I approach family devotions with kids who range in age from 6 to 12? You know, Andy, that's always a hard thing because you've got kids that learn at different levels. They've got different attention spans. 
Um, so so I, I feel very strongly about this. Rather than sit down for what, what we call family devotions, uh, I would sit down with your Bibles and your children and your wife and read the Bible. Read it systematically. Uh, if your six-year-old is having trouble uh, reading something, just help him the best you can. But reading the Word and then having conversation about it. Ask your 12-year-old, so what does that say to you? I mean, what do you think that means? And then just enter into a discussion. And then as a 12-year-old kind of gives his thoughts or her thoughts, the other kids will probably copy him. But here's the, the idea. The, the Word of God is living and active. It'll meet your kids where you are. Your sense of family devotion or, or telling Bible stories um, really, really doesn't have the same power. And, and because the Word is living and active, it'll meet your 6-year-old and your 12-year-old and any in between where they are. And there will be lots of questions come up. There will be great opportunities uh, for, for family discussion. Um, please, 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 just read the Word. Now, one other thing, Andy, read sequentially. By that I mean uh, don't make family devotions like uh, an hour of going to church. It's not Dad sitting up and setting up a music stand as a pulpit and, and preaching to the family. It's just reading and talking and letting the Holy Spirit work. When I say read sequentially, make the, the, the portions of Scripture small enough. Your Bible's broken up into paragraphs or broken up into to headings, and you can read the stories um, and talk about them. Well, wherever you left off today, return tomorrow to the very next verse and start all over and do the process. Wouldn't it be great if your children could say, by the time they're in high school, yeah, my mom and dad, they took us through the Bible, and we've we've read through the whole Bible two, three times in in our home since we've grown up. Great things. Now, some of the things are going to be tedious. Some things are going to be more difficult to explain. That's okay. I think it's very attractive for for kids when a husband or a mom will say, "Um, you know what, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to check it out and Tomorrow we'll talk about it. That kind of humility is appealing. So take the time with your family, your whole family, and read sequentially. When you finish a book, and I would focus primarily in family devotions in the New Testament, when you get done with a book, then together you can all sit down and pray and say, Jesus, thank you. You've taken us through this whole book. We've read every word. And our family is so grateful. And you can teach your children themselves how to study. One other thing, um, Andy. Uh, family devotion does not replace the time that husbands and wives need in the Word together. So you and your wife, as adults, you need to be in the Word together, too. God will knit your hearts together so wonderfully, so supernaturally so. But you need to spend time in the Word with your wife. And then I will make one more extension that doesn't mean that that will take your time in the Word away. You you need time in the Word alone as an individual as well. So too will your wife. And see, that's what you want to teach your children. You want them to learn what the Word says. You want them to depend on the Word. And you want them to see the power of God at work. So congratulations on on being committed to family devotions. Just make sure that they're functional and You know, if you're not a gifted teacher, it's okay. You can all read, you can talk about it, and God will do some really neat things. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is our next question from from William. He says, Pastor Ron, why did Jesus use parables instead of being straightforward when he taught? Well, when he used parables, William, he was being straightforward. Now, obviously, Jesus' parables are difficult for us to understand, but they weren't difficult for the people who heard them to understand. Jesus used a lot of agrarian um, um, symbols. Um, he, he spoke in, in terms that, that uh, his, his audience would have understood. 
And parables were not written or spoken to conceal the truth. Rather, they were spoken to reveal the truth. And so when Jesus was talking to, for instance, the religious enemies, the, the, the religious leaders of Israel, uh, and he spoke parables to them, they understood everything that he said. Uh, you know, these things insult us. Jesus didn't care. He wanted them to get it. And so he spoke in parables. Now, some of the parables are difficult for us to understand. Imagine when Jesus was talking about the parable of the sower. Imagine he was sitting on a rock overlooking a plain, and he would see all of these birds uh, over a field, and they'd be going in and, and sort of taking the seed that the, the, the farmer had scattered. He would use that very familiar figure to make a point. So they knew exactly what he was doing, what he was saying, and it pierced their heart. So that's why he used parables. It's like when a pastor uses a sermon illustration. Jesus used sermon illustrations all the time. And the woman at the well in Samaria, um, um, when when she left, and she brought back all of the, the, the people in the city. They would be running out, and Jesus and his disciples... Uh, the, the disciples amazed he was talking to, to a Samaritan woman and, and all of a sudden all these people are running they're, they're wearing white um, robes and turbans in, in that culture and they'd be running across the field and Jesus would look up at his disciples and say look the fields are white for harvest they're ready pray that the Lord would send workers in the harvest field well he, Jesus was telling the disciples you're the workers he's going to send in the field but look there's the illustration and as they would bounce along from a distance they would look like grains of wheat blowing in the sand or blowing in the wind I mean and so he used sermon illustrations a lot he was a master at it of course and uh, that's why he did it let's go to Chuck from Lavernia hi Chuck thanks for calling you're on the air how you doing today, Pastor Ross? I'm doing really well, Chuck. How about you? Uh, blessed. It's a beautiful day. Good. I got, I got a question to put before you that uh, a friend of mine put before me last week on our way to Arkansas, and it, it was about Jesus' baptism by John. He asked me, why did Jesus have need to be baptized by John? And if if you could answer it, Give me some scriptures. He asked for scriptures that backed it up. I didn't know how exactly how to answer that. Okay, I can do that. Actually, I don't know. Uh, uh, I don't have the, uh, the, the my Bible in front of me right now, Chuck. But in the Gospels, when uh, John was um, in the water and Jesus walked down, John the Baptist asked exactly the same question. No, it's I who should be baptized by you. And Jesus said, no, you do this to fulfill all righteousness. And the, the, the reason that he did it was to identify with sinful human man. Um, we are sinners. We need to be baptized into, into repentance. Jesus was walking in knowing. Now, Jesus' baptism was prophetic in the sense that Jesus knew that on the cross at Calvary, he would become sin. He literally would be the sin bearer. It's not like Jesus just said, okay, I'm going to take this beating and they're okay. He actually became sin. That's when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, he, he, he was forsaken by his father who couldn't look upon sin. And so Jesus, prophetically at his baptism, was saying, this is my mission. I've come to die, and when I die, I'm going to be the sin bearer for the world. So he was identifying, Chuck, with you and with me and everybody who's ever lived and saying that repentance, forgiveness of sins is available to all. And that's why um, why he did it. He, he certainly didn't need to do it. He wasn't a sinner. He had lived his life until he became sin for us without any hint or taint of sin. But he took your sin in mind. So uh, I guess the short answer, Chuck, is that he was baptized thinking about me. He was baptized because he loved you. And he couldn't imagine heaven without us. And so he did what he had to do. 
He did what he had to do to ensure that we had a way to get to heaven. So Matthew and Luke both have, have the, uh, the, the stories in it. Matthew chapter 3, it's verses 13 through 15. And uh, Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 19, I was incorrect when I said Luke. It was Matthew and Mark who has it. So it was just an identification thing. That was what it was. Thank you, Chuck. Appreciate okay. it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Three, how are we doing on time? About eight. Three, four, zero. We still have a little time for a phone call if you want to. Three, four, zero, ninety-five, eighty-five. Um, here's a question, Oliver. I don't understand why Jesus cursed the fig tree. Is there a hidden message? Uh, Oliver, I don't think the message is hidden. Now, uh, it's, it's a, a timely question because we got Palm Sunday coming up on the 25th of this month. And this is the passage of, of Scripture that I always teach on Palm Sunday because I want people to understand. You know, Jesus came into Jerusalem the night before. Um, he saw what was going on. He turned over the money changers' tables the second time he did this. He saw that the poor were being taken advantage of. Um, the house of God, you've turned my father's house, a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. And it broke his heart. He would see the religious leaders who were supposed to be those who represented God. And he would see that they were misrepresenting God. They looked the part, but they they weren't who they claimed to be. Not only that, but earlier that morning when he comes riding into Jerusalem, at exactly the right time, the day he had to be there, according to the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, they proclaimed, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They knew who he was. But he knew those people would reject him. He knew they would be calling for Barabbas in less than a week. Nothing was as it seemed. Well, the next day, he retires that evening to go to Bethany, gets up, and Jesus is hungry. It's time to eat in the morning. And he sees a fig tree and leaf. Now, typically, and I know this isn't an always thing. I've had people try to correct me on this. Well, not all leafy fig trees have figs. Well, obviously, that's true. But Jesus, because he was hungry, saw a fig tree. And he expected, was hopeful that there would be something in it to eat. And I always imagine Jesus thinking, we got a fig tree in our backyard. Somebody gave it to us as a gift. People I love very much. And it's not fun to go digging into a fig tree. Well, Jesus cursed the fig tree because there was nothing on it. The fig tree promised breakfast, but there wasn't any. You remember his disciples, all of them were amazed that the fig tree withered so quickly. And I, I think they asked the same question, why did you do this? I mean, what was the point of that? It would have caused them the same kind of difficulty. I think what Jesus was doing, I said earlier, he used sermon illustrations. I think that fig tree was a sermon illustration. Jesus came to his own. His own received him not. He came looking for fruit, and there was none. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you knew, if you only knew that I'd come to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. I've come to love you. I've come to save you. But you rejected me. I always teach that that fig tree was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. It was just like, this is too much. And Jesus gave his disciples a sermon illustration of what was going to happen to Israel. It is going to be dried up. It's going to be devastated. It is cursed because I came to my own and my own received me not. And that's why he did it. The temple wasn't the house of God. It was a house for dishonest business dealings. The religious leaders weren't the representatives of God they were supposed to be. The people in the crowd calling out Hosanna didn't mean it. And it was almost like Jesus said, and now even you, fig tree, <laughs> too fig tree. And he cursed it. It was just a sermon illustration. 
So I don't think the message is hidden at all. I think it's very clear. And it's also very, very sad. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Oliver. I appreciate the, the question. By the way, as we approach uh, Palm Sunday and Easter, if you have any questions about uh, Easter or Palm Sunday, um, we'd love to have those uh, be very timely questions uh, in the weeks to come. Uh, here's the last question. I've got two inside two minutes. Um, Adam wants to know, why does God hate the Nicolaitans, and who were the Nicolaitans? Uh, Adam, God doesn't hate the Nicolaitans. He hates the practices of the Nicolaitans. You know, it's just like we say God... Uh, hates the sin but loves the sinner as trite and incorrect as it really is. Um, um, sometimes it's the best way we can explain. The Nicolaitans were a group of, of laity uh, over, I mean, I'm sorry, a clergy over laity, we would say, in, in our church age. Uh, but these were people who were usurping authority in the early church. Uh, it comes from two Latin words, nico meaning above, laitans meaning laity, the people. They put themselves above the people. Uh, he hated that practice then. We don't need uh, intermediaries. We don't need to go to a priest. We don't need to, to, to have uh, some famous pastor stand between us and God. There's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And anything that gets in the way of the individual's relationship with God, God hates that. Again, he doesn't hate the person. He loves the person, but he wants him to repent. And the calls for the Nicolaitans to repent are legendary. So that's what he hates. He hates the fact that men will put themselves in a position between God and the people that they're ministering to. Adam, thanks for the question. Thanks for tuning in today. Remember, Paula will be live in studio tomorrow instead of Thursday, ladies. If you have any questions or calls, you've been listening to The Word to Stand Them for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.